worthy to behold you in any form. Now I understand by your grace why no man can see you and live. Please help my brothers and sisters to see that through the ministry of your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege of beholding you, beholding the brilliance of your holiness through the pages of scripture. This is your word that you have magnified above all else. May you be increased and exalted, and may I and we be decreased, decimated, and brought low in true humility before you. Be glorified. Please establish your word to your servants as that produces reverence for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most adults in the developed countries live to be 80 years old on average. In their lifetime, approximately, they might see tens of thousands to a little over a million of faces of other people, depending on their occupation, travel frequency, and hobbies. With some faces, we have instant connection, develop acquaintances, or form deeper relationships, and might even fall in love. Some we remember for life, but most we don't remember because there is no emotion. We can connect them to and have them imprinted on our memories. Besides other human faces, we can remember events, good and bad. We can also remember the smells, the salt water breeze from the endless ocean. We can remember the sight and sound, the birds singing, or the landscapes of miles and miles of lush green rolling hills or tall grass prairie, or even neatly manicured city lawns. We use phrases such as, the picture doesn't do justice. Some of what we see and experience does seem to have much deeper impact in our lives, good and bad. It does influence us. We live in the light of what we see. More than we realize, it shapes our perceptions and our responses. The devil seemed to have understood that. In Matthew 4, he tried to lure the second person of the Trinity to commit the unthinkable. It says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Why? What was his thought process? Scripture does tell us why. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The devil wanted to use what he showed Jesus to influence his response, didn't he? Hopefully this morning we'll learn to respond like how Jesus responded. Go, Satan, for it is written, for you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We are what we see and perceive. Our perception of God is going to manifest itself in our lives. In our sermon text from Isaiah 6, the Lord showed the vision of his holy self to Isaiah to expose Isaiah's sinful nature, cleansed and prepared him for service. So Isaiah 6 is all about helping us to understand the nature of God, thus nature of men, and learn to live in the light of God's majestic holiness. We cannot walk away from studying this holy text unimpacted, humbled or hardened. We see in this text some unmistakable crystal clear truths that God is holy. And that means every single one of us are unclean before him. We are sinners in our nature, attitudes, and actions. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, 
and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We are unclean spiritually, as lepers are unclean physically, because sin is in the deepest recession of who we are, thoughts, attitudes, and actions. We need God to atone for our sins, forgive them, cleanse us so that we could be used of God. Which means Isaiah 6 is helping us to see that the Lord is calling us to practical holiness based on his own eternal holiness to those who received justification in Christ. If all you can remember from this sermon is just one statement, please remember this statement. And the bottom line is this. God is holy and we need to imitate his holiness. Yes, all sinners need to confess their sins and repent, but even as believers who have been pronounced holy because of the righteousness of Christ, we need this radical, practical holiness in our mundane to big things of life to prove that we do have this positional holiness in Christ Jesus. So how does this work? How should the understanding of God's holiness from someone else's vision have an impact in our lives. In Isaiah 6, we clearly see the flow of the passage by the repeated use of the word then in this chapter. Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord, and then in verse 5, Isaiah gets to respond to what he sees. And then in verse 6, Isaiah is restored, or you could say reconciled to God as he's being prepared for service. That word then is repeated three more times in this chapter in Isaiah's conversation with the Lord. So following the same flow of the text, we see three outcomes that the Lord brings forth to help us live in the light of his holiness. Three outcomes that the Lord himself brings forth to help us live in the light of his holiness. And then we will consider some practical outcomes of God's work in our lives as the fourth point. Let's first start with what God does. Number one, living in the light of God's holiness starts with proper understanding of God's holiness. Living in the light of God's holiness starts with God first, starts with proper understanding of his holiness. We see that in the first four verses. It's important for us to realize that this was a divinely imposed vision. Isaiah saw God because God revealed himself to him. And through Isaiah, we get to see it too. Praise God for that. Look at verse one with me. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. The first half of this verse is not just informational. It is important. Um, who is this King Uzziah? Second Chronicles 26 and Second Kings 15 tell us that Uzziah became king when he was just 16 years old. And he reigned for 52 years, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord most of his life. And under King Uzziah's reign, the boundaries had been extended to their ancient borders. Commerce and agriculture flourished, and Israel and Judah were at peace. Second Chronicles 26, 16 tells us, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he, uttered, 
for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Eighty plus priests stood in the way to stop him from doing that. They tried to persuade him. And as he was trying to argue his rights with them, the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he remained as a leper and lived out his days separated from his household and from the household of God while his son Jotham was reigning in his place. Why is this background important? For more than half a century, Uzziah was the mightiest and godly leader, but he lacked an understanding of God's holiness. Very similar to Nadab and Abihu who tried to offer the unauthorized strange fire to the Lord and paid for it with their lives. You would think that history wouldn't repeat itself. It was during this time that Isaiah had this vision. With King Uzziah's mighty fall from grace, Isaiah needed to know the holiness of God so that he can be cleansed and serve him accordingly, even if the audience would refuse to listen to the message from his holy God. But didn't God say to Moses in Exodus 33:20, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Even the greatest prophet, the humblest man in all of earth was only allowed to see the glimpse of God's glory for his own good. And Apostle John categorically makes a statement in John 1:18 that no man has seen God at any time. And Paul affirms that in 1 Timothy 6.16, no man has seen or can see. So how do we understand this phrase, I saw the Lord? Notice the word Lord in verses 1, 8, and 11. It is the Hebrew word Adonai, which simply means my Lord. Now, notice the words Lord in all capital in verses 3, 5, And 12, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of God, referring to God the Father who is faithful to his covenants. So Isaiah seemed to have had a Christophany. In John 12, after Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time and was teaching his disciples about his atoning death that he's going to fulfill shortly, John lists the reasons as to why the ministry of Jesus wasn't as successful among his own people. And he quotes Isaiah 6, verse 10. And he says this in John 12, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory? His and him referring to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Adonai. Since no human being can see Yahweh and live, God has graciously allowed some to see the eternal Son of God, Lord Jesus Christ, in his radiant glory. There were many appearances of God. We call them theophanies in the Old Testament, where God took various visible forms to show himself to people. But no man, no one has ever seen Yahweh in all his glory. Not Abraham, not Jacob, nor Moses. Prophet Daniel had a vision in Daniel 7 where he saw a manifestation of Yahweh as the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. We only know the Father through the Son who is able, who is the greatest visible manifestation of God. Let me repeat that phrase. We only know the Father through the Son, who is the greatest visible 
manifestation of God. Apostle John saw a similar vision to Isaiah's. And when he saw Christ in his glory, he fell at his feet like a dead man. But the same apostle was at the bosom of the incarnate Jesus during the Last Supper. Peter, John, James got a glimpse of that glory um, earlier during Christ's transfiguration. He whom Isaiah sees here is the Lord, Adonai, the truly sovereign God who can soften or harden men's hearts. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Uh, scripturally speaking, God being seated is typically associated with God being the righteous king and judge. Psalm 29.10 and Psalm 2.4. And he sees the Lord lofty and exalted because there is an infinite chasm between God and us. God is infinitely morally pure. His transcendent majesty and holiness is unfathomable for us sinful creatures. The train of this righteous king's robe filling the temple. The length of the train of the robe signified the elevated status even amongst the earthly royalty between the regional kings and the emperors. The robe of the Lord's train filled the temple so that there was no room left for anyone else. It was a scene of unrivaled glorious majesty. Our attention is directed solely on the Lord. In verses two and three, we are introduced to a couple of heavenly attendants who are described as seraphim or literally burning ones. Verse two, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. This is the only passage in all of Old Testament um, in which they are mentioned. Most of us are aware of cherubim, seraphim are not cherubim for both of their appearances and functions are quite different. Each seraph um, had three pairs of wings as a sign of reverence and awe before the Holy Lord. Each seraph covered his face with two of his wings, as if their covering of their faces would preclude them any irreverent beholding of the Lord. And likely the glory of the Lord was so great they could not look directly at the majestic God seated on the throne, even though they have only existed in the throne room of Christ. They not only covered their faces, but with two wings, they also covered their feet. And about you, I'd say, humanly speaking, feet are the less noble part of the body. So perhaps it was done as an expression of humility and unworthiness. With two remaining wings, the seraphs used for flight. Uh, Daniel 7.10 says, thousands upon thousands were attending him. 1 Kings 22.19, all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So we don't need to assume only two seraphs were there. Our text does not tell us that. Um, one other minor thing to note is that they were not standing on a solid surface. They were in a ready state of flight, ever at hand, prepared for obedience to serve the Lord. We could say with their posture and with their wings and with their voices, they serve the triune Lord constantly. We see in verse three, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The continuous occupation of the seraphim is the blessed work of praising God. One calling to another, likely responsive singing similar to what we do with scripture reading in the evening services sometimes. 
In this responsive singing, they proclaimed and declared that the Lord, Yahweh, to be holy. The Hebrew word kadosh, used here, that is translated as holy for us, signifies the entirety of the divine perfection, which separates God from his creation. The root word is generally taken in the sense to separate, cut off, be devoted. It could also mean to shine, be immaculate, be pure. To be holy is to be divine. It is a possessed divine nature that rendered it separate from all of us. Yahweh was and is and shall ever be holy. He will never be other than holy. No compromises, no slip-ups. He is God. He's not human. He is divine. Being separated from sin in such a way means that God is totally opposed to sin of any kind or form. There are no justifiable or respectable sins in God's vernacular. God's righteous anger against sin is the expression of his holiness in action. When Isaiah beheld the Holy One in the temple, he was standing before the one who alone is truly God, utterly separate from his creation and from all that is sinful. God is holy simply because he is God. He is the indescribable one. We just don't have words to capture it all in its full essence. So we take it to the superlative degree. Like even prophet Habakkuk did in Habakkuk 1.13, God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. You know, the seraphim could have sung about any characteristic of God, which would have been true and appropriate. How about a new song on his providence that governs the, every minute particle in this universe? What about his omniscience, omnipotence, eternality, wisdom, love? Why choose to put on display his holiness? What is so special about that? Because it is the very essence of God. It is his distinguishing character. That's why we call it a righteous or a holy anger. His words are holy words. Wherever he descends, the place becomes holy. But why is this word holy uttered three times? It could be a reference to Trinity. It definitely has some merits to that because in the New Testament, all three persons of the Trinity have been attributed with this characteristic of holiness. His only begotten son is his holy son. Uh, we could quote multiple verses. Let me give us two references. Acts 4.13, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Hebrews 7.26, for it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We run out of words to describe him, don't we? His spirit is Holy Spirit. Again, we could quote multiple references. Let me give us two. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you? Let me back up. The you here is the singular you, unlike the 1 Corinthians 3 where it was the plural you 
Copernicus, all y'all you over there. In 1 Corinthians 6, it is the singular you, okay? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? God is a threefold holy one. But more than likely, it is repeated three times for the sake of emphasis. He is holy, holier, holiest. He is holy, more holy, and most holy. That superlative degree of emphasis is a level that helps us to understand the towering holiness of God. The ancient Hebrew people adopted this methodology of emphasis, but it originated from God's throne room scenes like this. Don't miss this though, that holiness is his glory. That's why it says the whole earth is full of his glory. God's essential glory, the glory that he has in and of himself as God and the glory which he has displayed in the created universe. So what is God's glory? It is a revelation of his attributes. In Exodus 33:22, when God revealed a part of himself to Moses, he said this, and it will come about while my glory is passing by. God says, while my glory is passing by, not while I pass by. The Hebrew word kaward, used for God's glory here, literally means heaviness. It stands for its weight. All that God is, his supreme worth, the weightiness of his very essence, encapsulated by his holiness, is fully arrayed as his glory. His holiness and glory cannot be separated. Verse four tells us, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. This, this kind of shaking of the foundations and trembling of the thresholds is continuous in nature and progressive in duration because the seraphim's praises of the Holy One who sits upon the throne are continuous. In addition to the shaking, the temple was constantly being filled with smoke. As we see in other places where God descended or his people had the vision of the Lord, uh, like Exodus 19 and 20 and Revelation 15, smoke often appears in connection with or because of divine presence. Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord. How did Isaiah respond to seeing the holiest of holies? and God's display of his glory. And that's point number two, living in the light of God's holiness exposes uncleanness. Living in the light of God's holiness exposes uncleanness. We see that in verse five, then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If I put on my Uncle Simon Peter's hat, I'd say, Isaiah, stop. Your lips are the best part of you, man. You're a prophet of God uttering the very words of God. How could that be unclean? And Isaiah would rebuke me and point me to the psalmist in Psalm 24, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn 
deceitfully. Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Matthew 12.34. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, unclean lips come from unclean hearts. And Isaiah considered himself to be a moral leper. Seeing the holiest of holies and hearing the pure praises of the seraphim and their posture before their holy God, Isaiah knew instantly his unworthiness and his sinful nature. Do you remember the night when um, Peter and his crew worked hard all night and caught nothing? And then Jesus entered the scene and did a miracle so that they caught many fish and to the point that the nets were uh, beginning to break. And this is what Peter said in Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That's why even with little of what Moses saw, he said, I am full of fear and trembling. Hebrews 12, 21. The effect of beholding God is to make us realize our own unworthiness and the corruption of our own heart. So Isaiah here cries out, woe is me, for I'm ruined, I'm undone, I'm dead. The seraph's praise is pure. What Isaiah must do is to join them in singing God's praises. But because of the depravity, he could not do that because the sinfulness manifested itself in the lips. Not only was Isaiah unfit to praise God, but the same had been true of the nation in whose midst he dwelt and represented. Because of sin, the entire nation remained unfit to praise God. The theocracy, the people of God who were supposed to be the city on a hill to the entire world were unfit to utter his praises. So Isaiah was made conscious of his own sin and unworthiness before he can have the privilege of praising God as he should. A second reason why uh, Isaiah believes himself to be undone is because he says, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Much like Gideon and Samson's parents uh, believed that they were gonna die after seeing the vision of the angel of the Lord. Um, it is the infinite distance between the holy God and sinful creatures like us that produces this prostrating effect. I mean, even the pure beings such as seraphim had to wail their faces before holy God. Notice a couple of phrases, that words that Isaiah uses here for God, the king and the Lord of hosts. The Lord is king who will manifest his kingdom in the reign of the Messiah and the subjection of the nations. This covenant making and keeping God is the Lord of hosts of all angelic beings in heaven. And whoever will call on the name of this Lord will be saved. And that's what we see next in point number three, living in the light of God's holiness is made possible by God's gracious cleansing. The life that we are talking about is only possible by God's gracious cleansing. And we see that in verses six and seven. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. 
which he had taken from the altar with tongs. The Lord could have banished Isaiah from his presence because by his own admission, he's a man of unclean lips and he lives among sinners. But seeing God, the holiness of God, understanding that the Lord abhors sins, recognizing one's own sinfulness is the first step toward new birth. The Lord chose to give a symbolic assurance to Isaiah that his sins were forgiven through the seraphim who do his bidding. One of the seraphim flew and took a burning coal from the altar with tongs. The application of the fire to the lips symbolized the fact that his lips, those lips were cleansed. The cleansing, however, is not the work of the fire. It is the work of the Lord because as we see in the next verse that a sacrifice for sin has been offered. The purity of lips can only come from God. Um, God used Isaiah to prophesy many of our favorite messianic texts that the gospel writers like Matthew quote extensively. And preparing Isaiah to deliver those messages is what this cleansing and humbling are all about. Verse seven, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. This verse is full of sacrificial language. Forgiveness is always based on propitiation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22. No exception clauses there. Isaiah might have had this vision after his animal sacrifice for atonement in the temple like Zechariah's vision in Luke 1. Our text does not tell us that, so we should not infer that. And this happened roughly 700 years before Christ's cross. So how do we understand this? Even our Lord Jesus Christ before the cross communicated to at least two people that their sins were forgiven. In Luke 5, to the paralyzed man whose friends brought him to Jesus. In Luke 7, to the sinful woman at the Pharisee's house. And we know God alone is the author of forgiveness. When we studied the book of Hebrews a couple of years ago, um, we learned that our sins are forgiven only on the basis of Jesus' death upon the cross. In the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices were the foreshadow of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So during the life of Jesus, sins were forgiven, looking up to and on the basis of his future death on the cross. So the full benefits of the cross were then granted to those who believed in God for forgiveness of their sins in both the Testaments. And Isaiah himself will address that in Isaiah 53. So here in verse seven, the action of the seraph in touching the coal from the altar of sacrifice to the lips of Isaiah symbolized the fact that the necessary propitiatory sacrifice has been made and his sins were forgiven. As if the symbolic action isn't enough, the seraph provided Isaiah with a verbal explanation. Behold, this has touched your lips. I think it is very important because people like me would linger longer on the symbolism. We need to move away from there to the understanding of the reality. That's why he says, and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The seraph did not mention any particular sin. And nor did they say, behold, your unclean lips are now cleansed. 
because lips simply reflect the heart. Now that the impurity and guilt are taken away, it paves way for God's gracious forgiveness. God is satisfied. In the following verses, we see Adonai, the sovereign one, speaking in plural form, representing the Trinity. Um, as one who has been graciously forgiven, Isaiah responds to his call right away. Um, he is ready to do God's bidding, just like the seraphim. Isaiah humbled himself and received mercy. But those who harden their hearts, like his audience, will have their hearts hardened. This vision of the holiness of Lord um, had a profound impact in Isaiah's ministry. He referred to God as the Holy One of Israel at least 29 times in his prophecies. And it formed an essential part of Isaiah's prophetic signature. Outside of the book of Isaiah, the name Holy One of Israel only appears six times in the Bible. And all of those references with allusions to Isaiah. So if the vision of the holiness of God has had such a profound impact in Isaiah's life and ministry, what are some areas in our lives where that impact should be obvious and significant? And that's what we'll see next. Point number four, living in the light of God's holiness. Practical implications. Let's start with the straightforward, obvious learning from the study of God and our responses to any study of God's attributes, and especially in regards to his holiness, as we see in this text, humility. The immediate reflex upon encountering such a holy God should be to fall on our faces and cry for mercy. One of the authors said, we are never so low in our own eyes as when we see the most high God. That's essentially the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We humbly cling to the cross of Christ, recognizing and acknowledging that we bring nothing and cannot earn our way to eternal salvation. A clear recognition that we are unclean, that we are sinners and moan over our sins as Isaiah moaned. When you understand the holiness of God, the result is an overwhelming sense of guilt and condemnation. Woe is me! Blessed are those who moan, for they shall be comforted. The godly sorrow over sin, mourning over your sin as for the dead leads to repentance and salvation. If it grieves God's heart, it should grieve us. If you're honest with ourselves, we will only look to God for redemption. Psalm 51 is a great example of godly grief over sin um, and repentance where David confesses his transgressions, sins and iniquities and begs God's forgiveness multiple times using words such as wash me, Cleanse me, purify me, deliver me, blot out my transgressions, renew my spirit, restore my joy, and so on. And then he says in verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
That's mourning over your sin in humble repentance unto salvation. We even saw earlier how Isaiah humbled himself and cried out that he is unclean, a sinner, and a hot coal was supplied to Isaiah's lips. And that imagery should help us understand how God responds to the sinners at the point of their confessed need by graciously forgiving their sins because of the atoning death of Christ Jesus. Do you understand the cost of atoning death? Nothing less than the excruciating suffering of the infinitely holy God, perfect God-man Jesus Christ could bring us that salvation. What happens if a believer persists in sin? Hebrews 12.10 says, For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. And it doesn't end there. So that we may share his holiness. Being holy as he is holy is the end goal. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves us. And that's why humility in the light of God's holiness is not just a prerequisite to become his child, but it is a Christ-like biblical virtue for us to cultivate all our lives, even for mature Christians. James 4, 6 says, God gives grace to the humble. Humility begets grace, which in turn begets holiness. Ephesians 4.24, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Commentator Matthew Paul says, the result and quintessence of all the graces of the Spirit is holiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart is the heart that God has cleansed. The pure in heart experience deep fellowship with God and are assured that they will see God. Pure in heart has an all-consuming focus to know God, to love him, to enjoy him, to obey him, and to glorify him. And those who believe in this precious promise will fight for purity in their own lives, not with their own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. How exactly do they go about that? That's what we'll see next. Imitate God's holiness. The book of Leviticus in the Bible has an intertwined theme. The worship of God in holiness. There was no vagueness in what God required in the law. It was down to the specific details, even if it makes us uncomfortable, and at the conclusion of every category, God repeated this phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 20, 26 summarized it all. Thus you are to be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 1 to remind the believers that yes, the details between the covenants have changed, but the command to imitate God and worship God, worshiping God in holiness still remains. When we defined holiness earlier, we said it is the otherness of God, separate from all uncleanness. 
Much the same way, we have to be separate from sin and be dedicated to God. Do you have serious concerns about your own sin? Do you understand the need for careful obedience? Just one sin. In Acts 5, of lying to the Holy Spirit, got Ananias and Sapphira killed. Just one sin cost Moses to not enter the promised land. Please listen to what God said in Deuteronomy 32. Because you broke faith with me, in the midst of the sons of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy, in the midst of the sons of Israel, for you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there, into the land which I'm giving to the sons of Israel. As children of God, is treating God as holy important for us here on earth? Numbers 20 also tells us because of the same sin, Moses' mouthpiece Aaron will also not go into the promised land. And the priesthood will pass on to his oldest Eliezer. James 2.10 says, you violate one commandment and you are guilty of breaking all of the commandments. What does that sound harsh and extreme to our sinful ears? We either don't have the high view of God or we don't have the proper biblical understanding of God's holiness. It is also possible that we have the bookish knowledge on God's holiness because we have attended an equipping class or heard a sermon or read a book on holiness, but we haven't allowed that knowledge to infiltrate deeper and change us. If our minds have been renewed by the word of God, and our hearts would have been transformed by it and would have set our lives on a course to be conformed to the character of God. When we understand the cross, we understand God's holiness. The humiliation of Jesus from incarnation to the cross, the propitiation of Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice in our stead is the holiness of God on full display. As once, who have been exposed to this knowledge. Do you want to despise like those in Hebrews 6? If you do, it is impossible to repent again, says Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. So how do we imitate God and hate sin? That's next. Have a biblical outlook on sin. You know, this command from God, be holy as I'm holy, destroys every casual attitude towards sin, does it not? And we need this serious biblical outlook on sin. The pursuit of holiness starts with biblical outlook. And we need to hate sin as God does. Apostle Paul prescribes a few things to help Timothy and us um, in that pursuit. Uh, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. It says, But have nothing to do with the worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Because there is no such thing as instant practical godliness. Look at verse 10. We see words like labor and strive. 
And verse 12, show yourself an example to those who believe. Turn to chapter six. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Because that kind of love is the root of all evil, verse 11, flee from these things, you man of God. Flee and not flirt. Don't play with it. Don't negotiate with it. Live it and run. As you run away from these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and godliness, gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Do you hear a passive tone from these verses? This is pretty vigorous language, isn't it? Flee, pursue, fight, take hold, labor, strive, and discipline. Our default bent is to love sin. And learning to hate sin as part of our new nature is the process of sanctification. We learn to hate sin, armed with the knowledge of God's holiness, by fleeing from sin and striving for holiness. Holiness cannot be attained without the flight from sin and pursuit of godliness. Please flip a couple of more pages with me to Second Timothy chapter two. In the first half of this chapter, believers are likened to soldiers athletes and hardworking farmers in order to encourage us to not to entangle ourselves in the temporal things or to compete according to rules and to work hard so that we can receive the first share of the crops. Look at verse 15 with me. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Avoid any pattern of living that will lead to ungodliness. Diligently pursue godly service. Look at verse 19. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Who does the cleansing here? If anyone cleanses himself. God has given us the responsibility to cleanse ourselves from the dishonorable things as part of our sanctification. Just like any physician or a surgeon um, would not proceed with the surgery if the instruments were unsterilized, our God cannot use us. Um, since our sinful lifestyles do not represent him or, nor honor him. So how do we cleanse ourselves? And how do we abstain from wickedness? Look at verse 22. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What's next? With those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Same flight, fight, 
and pursued principle, but with a twist. You do that with a body of Christ. You do that with those who believe in Jesus Christ and are also striving for purity in their lives. Don't forget your union with Christ. Don't forget your union with his people. Do we love Christian discipleship? Or do we think that it is a little too much intrusion in our personal lives? Our holy God has given us the body of Christ to encourage us not to compromise on biblical standards or accommodate sin to ride with us unchecked. Uh, most of us will not commit um, breaking news-worthy sins, but we do let respectable sins slide, like grumbling, gossip, materialism, and greed, and those are our blind spots. And we need the body of Christ in our fight against sin. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Puritan Charnock explains it this way. This means that a person ought to strike as full and deadly a blow at lust as was struck upon the cross and make them as certainly die as the Redeemer did. Let's not trifle with sin instead crucify it. Uh, please jot down this reference and read it later. Ephesians 5, 26. It tells us it is the word of God that's the cleansing agent we are to use. Um, we will not grow in holiness apart from abiding in God's word. Um, we need this serious biblical outlook on sin. Hate it, avoid it, run from it while you pursue godliness. Um, another way we can grow in holiness is by treating God's grace as motivation for holiness. Treat God's grace as motivation for holiness. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. God's grace motivated Paul to labor all the more. God's grace rightly understood enables and motivates our pursuit of holiness. God's unconditional grace is not a license to sin, but an inspiration to holiness. If we understand God's holiness, sin has its name and grace has its cherished place. We see in Jude 1.4, the false teachers, ungodly persons, have turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Instead, as God's people, we are exhorted to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Grace enables us to be both humble and confident. When we think about who we are without Christ, we are humbled. When we think about Christ's sacrifice for us, we can gain confidence in his grace. And another way we can grow in holiness is by preparing our hearts for worship. Prepare for worship. John Calvin said, we should never speak or think of God without highest reverence. Do you come to worship having carefully prepared your hearts or without consideration. If we comprehend that we worship a majestic holy God, we will never 
burst into the presence of God unprepared. We will not consider public worship services like this to be a small matter. Do we not offend his holiness when we fail to prepare our hearts and clean up our thoughts and then try to truly concentrate and work at giving God our best effort? To quote Charnak again, he says, we offer God but a slight service if we do not believe in the excellency of his nature. A holy God requires holy worship. We condemn then his perfection when we come before him without due preparation, as if God himself were of an impure nature and did not deserve our purest thoughts in our applications to him, as if any blemished and polluted sacrifice were good enough for him and his nature deserved no better. This consumeristic culture has invaded our churches. So we have no thoughts about God or his people. It is all about us. You learn to serve my specific needs in this church, or I'm out of here. Let's prepare our hearts for worship every time, focusing on God and his people. As people who imitate God in his holiness, our lives also need to be imitable. And that's next, be imitable. Does our life adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, and reflect our holy God? Or are we a mass of contradictions, confusions, and compromise? Is the name of God blasphemed among unbelievers because of our hypocrisy? Is our life a motivation to holiness for others? Or a stumbling block for the weak, wounding their consciences, leading them to ruin and even destroying their faith? In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What true believer does not have this healthy fear that their sin might somehow disqualify them? The only safe evidence that we are in Christ is the holy life that represents God and points to God. It is no secret that Christians are not perfect. Every believer struggles with sin. That's the picture of Romans 7.21. God graciously enables us to see the sin and its effect in our lives that we might not defend it, but confess, repent, and fight against it. We might feel weak at times and defeated, but the power of God is still at work within us. We have the Holy Spirit who helps us. And his goal is to conform us to the character of God. We can't do that without Holy Spirit's help anyway. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if it had ended there, we absolutely have no hope in our fight against sin but by the grace of God, it goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Persevere in hating sin and delighting in God. Influence the church and the world by being imitable, 
Finally, worship. J.A. Packer says, the life of true holiness is rooted in the soil of odd adoration. Prayer is the secret to holiness. That's where holiness begins, not with us, but with God. Um, frequent contemplation on the holiness of God and his consequent hatred of sin would be a strong deterrent against trifling with sin. We all need a continuous Isaiah experience, um, but there is absolutely no shortcut to holiness that bypasses or gives little priority to the consistent obedience to the ordinary means of grace. Intake of scripture, meaningful prayer, and gathering with the local body of believers. Until our Matthew study about a decade ago, I used to wrongly believe that gospel is just for the unbelievers. Yes, they need to believe, hear it, believe and repent, but believers need it too. To reassure ourselves of our positional holiness and our identity in Christ, which leads to practical, worshipful holiness. And that's how we worship in spirit and in truth. If you're here this morning and you don't have a loving relationship with our Father. Please know that um, we're not here to scare you or guilt trip you into becoming a true Christian. And in fact, none of us can do that. Um, just know this, um, without the holiness the Lord Jesus Christ offers and demands, you will spend eternity experiencing his wrath because our God is a consuming fire. And it doesn't have to be that way though. Um, if you confess your sins to God and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, whose sinless life and sacrifice alone can save you and be resolved to please him with your life, you will spend eternity with guaranteed the fullness of joy in his presence. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow springs of life. Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are you ready to see your God? Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We are sinners in need of constant 